What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. All right, thank you very much, Melissa. I am Dominic Hsu, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Rising commodity prices, soaring housing prices, stocks soaring, low rates, and trillions of dollars in stimulus. Sounds like a recipe for inflation, right? Well, maybe not. Maybe it's stuckflation. We'll explain later on in the show. Plus, the banking industry is feeling pressure to adopt Bitcoin And the push is not coming just from clients, it's coming from within. The details exclusively of that internal tug of war coming up. And the mass adoption of trading is a beauty boom ahead, fleeing to Florida, and one New York City staple goes from sweet to sour. That's all ahead coming up. But we begin first with the markets. Stocks right now trading in a narrow range to close out the week in any any kind of a move here. Try to close in the green for the S&P and the Nasdaq. It would be a record close, by the way, if we could get there. The indices are on pace for a second straight positive week. But right now, the Dow Industrials down about one-tenth of one percent. The S&P about that same percent to the upside. And the Nasdaq outperforming in that same bit as well here. So those three indices, a key focus. Some new highs in media today. Talk Disney, Comcast, News Corp. Those stocks, by the way, at record highs. Discovery is at a six-year high right now, and Twitter is at a seven-year high and on pace for a 10-day winning streak. Twitter, it wasn't that long ago. Wall Street wasn't exactly as enamored with that stock. So watch social media, watch traditional media, a lot of big highs today. Semiconductor still in focus. The ETF that tracks that sector, the Van Neck Vector Semiconductor ETF, ticker SMH, about three-quarters of 1% of the upside today, outperforming the market. Now, Going back to last November, Lamb Research, Western Digital, Applied Materials up all more than 10% just this week alone. So keep an eye on those semiconductor stocks. Meanwhile, despite valuations being through the roof by some measures, our next guest says the economy is headed for a state of stuckflation, meaning we should not fear inflation or deflation at all right now. For more, let's welcome in Jim McDonald, Chief Investment Strategist at Northern Trust, They've got a lot of money under management. Jim, stuckflation, that sounds to me like no inflation, no deflation, the perfect environment for risk assets. Is that the way it's supposed to look? Well, so, Don, stuckflation has been a theme of ours for five years now, and it's a reflection of the fact that technology is coming into a lot of industries, bringing in capacity at very low cost, and that is preventing pricing power from taking hold. Now, we do have a shorter-term theme, which stuckflation may be tested. And it may be tested because of the huge fiscal stimulus, very easy monetary policy, and a cyclical recovery. But we think it will pass the test, and we still will be in a stable inflation environment for years to come. If that's the case, a stable inflation environment, that almost suggests like there's no real risk right now that's being priced in with credit on the Treasury side of things. It seems to me that's a constructive environment for many different kinds of assets, including stocks. Is that the way that investors should read this? Well, I think it is the case. If you look at what's happened in the market, certainly there has been a lot of rally in 
things like credit spreads and expansion and PE multiples. The biggest risk to this is that we do have this test of inflation that leads to higher interest rates. But our view right now is that that is likely to not be a problem over the next 12 months. We have recently reduced our exposure in the credit markets. High yield has had a great run. We have reallocated some of that into natural resources, which is a play on the recovery, and also into U.S. equities. So we're now broadly overweight uh, U.S. equities and with an overweight in some natural resource areas and also in global listed infrastructure. Jim, is that indicative of a broader call on this kind of rotation to value that many experts have been talking about over the last four to six months here, this idea that the most beaten up parts of the industrials market, the energy market, oil and gas, that sort of thing, is the place that you want to be rather than in mega cap technology or media? So we don't think it's an either or. I do think that the laggards will recover, and that's one of our themes. But we don't think that the case for technology stocks is over. So I would describe it as much more of an environment where the laggards will perform much better relative uh, to technology. But we don't want to make a big call that it's just time to tilt the value. We do want to balance between value and growth. What's the scariest part of the market for you right now, Jim? As an investment strategist, there's a lot of money at Northern Trust. A lot of clients must have a lot of different questions. Are there things that predominantly get themed together in your mind for the biggest risks to the market right now outside of COVID? Sure. So outside of COVID, I would just have to say that there are certain areas of euphoria that have demonstrably occurred over the last six months, whether it's pockets of retail trading, or it's the SPAC phenomenon. Uh, Those are some signs of individual concerns. The macro concern around the market, beyond what you're saying with COVID, is just that things are priced a little bit towards perfection. That just means lower returns over the next uh, couple of years. It doesn't mean that we're set up for a big correction, because we do think the strength of the recovery over the next 12 months, with a Fed who's very committed to not moving rates, means that the bias remains higher. Do you believe, Jim, before we let you go, that the activity that we've seen trading in Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, cannabis stocks, some of these short squeeze stocks is in any way unhealthy for the market? I think when people start talking about fundamentals not mattering anymore and that the old time investors don't get it and all that matters is the news flow and what's going to be the next hot stock, that is disconcerting. I do think over the intermediate to long-term fundamentals will uh, prove out and matter. All right, Jim McDonough, Northern Trust. Thank you very much, sir. Have a nice weekend. Thank you. All right, well, the airline industry is facing a long runway to recovery and requiring a negative COVID test to get on a domestic flight could make that runway even longer. That issue and more being tackled at a meeting between the White House, COVID-19 response team, and airline executives happening today. Our own Phil LeBeau is always on top of everything in the skies and even on the ground. Phil, what exactly did they talk about? How much more stringent could travel get because of COVID? Well, look, if the, if the White House decides that there should be a negative test for anybody flying domestically, it will become more stringent. But there's no indication at this point that that is likely to happen anytime soon. I talked with a number of people who were part of or listened in on the meeting today between 
the White House COVID task force and airline executives. This was a virtual meeting, lasted about 30 minutes, and basically everybody I've talked to has said the same thing. This was a good exchange in terms of the executives saying, this is what we're doing, the White House task force saying, this is what we're focused on in terms of the spread of COVID-19, limiting it all. And again, no decision has been made on whether negative tests will be required for domestic flights. The airline executives stressed, and they have talked about this for some time, so this is not a new message. They believe that masks and disinfecting, along with HEPA filters on planes, that is limiting the spread of COVID-19. The concern for the industry is what would happen if the White House says, Look, all domestic flights have to do what you're doing on international flights. You must have a negative test before you can fly. If that were to happen, the concern is this chart right here that you see what few people are flying right now, and it's down between 60 and 70 percent compared to the same time last year. It depends on the day of the week, but generally down 60 to 70 percent. The concern for the airline executives is that number will stay depressed for a longer period of time and that you will not see a snapback in a recovery of uh, domestic demand for flying maybe in the spring or in the summer. Take a look at the airline stocks today, and we're showing you those for the ones that had a CEO who was attending virtually this meeting. Not a whole lot of reaction here, Dom. Um, the bottom line is this. The airline industry is fairly confident at this point that the White House will not require a negative test for domestic flights. But again, that could change. The White House made it clear today they are being guided by science, and if they believe that the science indicates that is the smart thing to do, they may move in that direction. Dom? Phil, the, the, the important date a lot of airline employees are watching right now is March 30th. That's when federal aid expires yep. to help the airline industry. How critical is it that a new COVID relief package get more money to these airlines to help save jobs? Well, certainly for the employees who would be laid off, and I haven't got a total count right now, but I'm guessing it's somewhere in that 25 to 30,000 range. Um, for those employees who would be furloughed again, it's very critical. And from the perspective of the airlines and the airline industry, if there is a snapback and they believe that there will be a snapback, that it'll come back very quickly, they want to be able to say, let's ramp up service as quickly as possible. Let's keep those people on the payroll. All right. Phil LeBeau with the latest on the airline industry. Thank you very much for that. So what does this all mean for the future of airline in the industry and who's best positioned for the recovery? Let's now bring in Helene Becker, senior analyst and covering airlines over at Cowan. Also, Gordon Bethune. You know him. He's the former Continental Airlines chairman and CEO. He's also a CNBC contributor. Helene, I, I guess we'll start with you first. We just heard Phil lay out some of the state of the industry. From your perspective, is the industry on a, an upward trajectory, albeit modest right now? Is it recovering? Is it something that we can be optimistic about or are there still too many hurdles to get over? Um, well, thanks for having me on, Dom. Um, yes, <laughs> to all of the above. It's, it's a lot to, to um, get over because of these restrictions that are in place. The industry needs revenue. If we could just open things up so that people could travel even if they have to mask up when they get to where they're going and so on, it would be so much better than where we are right now. The roughly million people we saw yesterday traveling and were kind of hanging around the 800,000 to a million people a day off peak, on the on-peak days rather, uh, means that there's a lot of pent-up demand. I think people want to travel. It's just that their governors or their governments aren't allowing them to. So we need to get past this whole issue of um, locking down 
and staying home and so on in, in order to really have a great recovery. But I think Phil hit it, um, the nail on the head. There's a lot of pent up demand. People want to go. I mean, uh, Helene brings up a great point, Gordon. This is no doubt an unprecedented time for the airline industry overall, with unprecedented tax dollars being put in to support the overall industry and system. In your mind, have the restrictions that have been put on travel, have they been too onerous? Are they just the right amount? Are we not doing enough? I mean, you used to run an airline that traveled all across the world. How, how, much, how much of this is an issue? I mean, it, it, did the government go too far? Well, I, I don't think too far. I think Elaine is right, as she usually is. Uh, we need less restrictions, not more. The very early signs of recovery on airline balance sheets is being squashed by this threat of having to have a test before you board a domestic flight. I couldn't think of anything more catastrophic for the recovery of an airline than to do that. We don't require you to have a test to go into your program and buy groceries. So, I mean, the airplane is as clean as you can get. I think we need to lighten up our touch. I think the government has done that. I hate to see them think again about requiring passengers to pay more money. That's part of the test to recover and fly domestically. I really, really hope it doesn't happen. I hope so. Gordon, if, if, if I could kind of follow up on that. If you look at the overall state of the business right now, there's no doubt that that, that a lot of government assistance, taxpayer assistance is critical to the industry. Is there is there a way that the, the industry can get back to get, get back on its own feet without having to have that much more taxpayer money put into it? Is there a way that they can operate out of this efficiently? And if so, what types of characteristics do companies in the airline business need to exhibit to get back on their feet quicker? Well, one, it's passenger revenue. So there's a major indicator of health. Obviously, that's growing, albeit slowly. But I'm with Helene. Let's not go backwards here. We need to continue to go forward as we have. And passenger traffic is building steadily and slowly. I think those people that use the word snapback are probably correct because the number of cases and the number of deaths are going down. All the positive things that make us feel better about being citizens and being able to do our jobs with COVID. And I think that's becoming better known and more aware. So people are traveling more. They're just going to let's not keep them from traveling. They're coming back right now. Helene, put it in perspective for us here. You cover all of these airlines as an investor looking at this. Are are, are there certain airlines that are better positioned to weather the storm, emerge stronger? Are there ones that are perhaps weaker hands right now that you want to stay away from as we expect things to recover? Um, Yes, so thank you. I think that domestically we're going to recover faster, um, and that obviously presupposes no testing. We, we just need people, people want to break out of jail. <laughs> and I think that's what this is, is going to be. I think, you know, we think that we're losing spring break, um, the March, at least March, maybe, maybe Easter, we'll see some improvement. We're really hoping that case counts and hospitalizations are down by Memorial Day weekend so that we get a good summer, not a great summer. And in that environment, I think you want to own the domestic U.S. airlines like Southwest, Spirit, Allegiant. Those would be our top three picks. I think internationally, as we recover, that's probably a 2022 event. You probably want to look at United, Delta, and American in that order. Um, 
I think the balance sheet improvement Gordon alluded to is going to occur as the revenues start to come back. I mean, we, we just need revenue. And the only way you get that is by opening things up. And, and I agree it has to be done safely, but there are ways to do it without um, these tests and so on that, um, that really causes people to say, oh, too much of a hassle, I'm not doing this. So we're, we're hoping that it start, you know, recovery in earnest starts, like, let's just say late May, June. It's one of the most impacted industries, of course, in this COVID pandemic right now, travel and tourism. Elaine Becker, thank you very much. Gordon Bethune, thank you, sir. I hope you guys both have a great long weekend. Thank you. Thanks. You too. Thank you. All right. Well, coming up on the show, MasterCard is in. PayPal is in. Square is in. So why aren't the traditional banks in? Wall Street is starting to feel the pressure to adopt Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, and it's coming from an unlikely source. The exclusive details are coming up ahead. Plus, there's a trade war happening over shipping containers. Yes, our own Brian Sullivan is live at the port of Charleston, South Carolina, with more. Brian. Yeah, Dom, and if you're one of the people out there that have ordered a Peloton or a treadmill or a rowing machine or whatever it is, and they're telling you it's gonna be three to four months until you get it at your house, it's not their fault. It's probably because of what's happening in these. And U.S. exporters are also ticked off. We'll tell you about the container crisis next on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to The Exchange. There's a serious problem in shipping that's disrupting global trade, and it could hold back the recovery both here at home and perhaps abroad as well. Brian Sullivan is live at the port of Charleston in South Carolina with that story. Brian. Yeah, John Lennon said war is over. I don't know if he was talking about the trade war or not, because if there was a trade war, it's with these containers now, Dom, because the volume of imports that we are consuming and buying from China and other parts of Asia is the greatest it's ever been. And it's causing a huge dislocation and imbalance in these things, these ubiquitous shipping containers that we never think about, we never had to think about them. And by the way, U.S. companies never had to think about them. They were cheap. They pretty much were anywhere you needed them. Ohio, Iowa, Chicago, they were there. Not the case anymore. The value of goods flowing from China is so great that the price of these has gone up 250%, which means they're being sent back empty rather than going back into other parts of the U.S. So you sit, you sit at home and you're thinking, well, I'm not an exporter. Why do I care? Here's why you care. We gave you the Peloton example. Here's who's hurt, okay? 
obviously U.S. exporters. You want to sell something to China or other parts of the world, you need one of these. You either can't find one or you want to try to overspend. That hurts the recovery. The importers of things like Pelotons, treadmills, machinery equipment, they're waiting months because of the backlog. And the farmers, too, they're particularly ticked off because that's a huge part of our exports. We talked to Jim Newsom, who runs the South Carolina Port Authority, including here the Port of Charleston. He's been in the business 40 plus years. He said the imbalance is the greatest he's ever seen. Brian, welcome to Charleston. We, this is a record level of imbalance. If you look at Northeast Asia and U.S., it's about three imports for every one export. So it's really unprecedented. And then within the country, the imbalance is even greater because you have a container in L.A. and you need it in Des Moines. It's not very helpful. Yeah, so Dom, you want that road to recover you guys were talking about? We need to sell stuff to other parts of the world so we have manufacturing jobs in the country. If you can't sell stuff because you can't get a container or it's not profitable, that hurts the recovery. That's why this story matters. I mean, it matters too, but let's talk about whether or not there is any sign, Brian, out there that things are actually getting better. We, we're hearing about these shipping bottlenecks, but are there points that investors and traders can look at, Wall Street and Main Street can look at to say, hey, things are actually getting better, so to speak? No, uh, is the short answer. I'll tell you why. Now, normally, Lunar New Year kicking off today, Dom. Usually that's a period where people take a week off in China. Everything slows and, and bottlenecks tend to ease. First off, a lot of people are working Lunar New Year because they're getting extra pay in China. We've heard that factories just cranking out around the clock. So that's not going to provide that natural gap. You've got 41 ships sitting off the port of Los Angeles. Normally, there's none or maybe a couple waiting to come in. You have shortages in truckers, right? Some have gotten COVID. Some have stayed away because of COVID. There's bottlenecks everywhere. At the bottom of it, Dom, everybody is sitting at home buying stuff online through Amazon and Walmart.com. That stuff is probably coming in one of these and coming around. But remember, it's got to be a two-way trade. So I hate to say it, Dom, right now there does not appear to be any kind of a solution. I know that's a frustrating thing to hear. That's why we're getting delays. But by the way, there have been some winners. If you're a stocks guy, look at Textainer, Triton International, CAI, or Atlas Air Worldwide. These are companies we've never talked about. Their stocks are up 150, 200% because they're the ones leasing these. And by the way, the federal government's starting to get involved, Dom, because there's actually a shortage. You think, why not just make more? Despite prices being up, the manufacturer of these containers, which is mostly done in China as well, is down and the Federal Maritime Commission is starting to poke around because they're just wondering what exactly is going on. Why don't we have more containers where they need to be or more new ones? It's a big global trade story. Shipping and logistics will continue to be probably one of the huge focal points of this entire story. Brian Sullivan in the Port of Charleston, thank you very much. We'll see you all day long. All right, coming up on the show, it's not just the airlines, restaurants and hotels that will benefit from a reopening as well. There's also an area of the market that's looking pretty right now that could also get a big boost. There's a hint there looking pretty. But if you're looking to get into the recent pot rally, there's one name that most analysts seem to agree is a good bet. In fact, it has no sell ratings on Wall Street right now. We've got that name coming up. And don't forget, you can watch us live on the CNBC app on your smartphone, on your tablet. The exchange will be right back. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. 
Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now are looking, we'll call it stable. You can see the Dow is down just about 50, 60 points. The S&P up by just about one, we'll call it flat. And the Nasdaq pretty much flat as well, 14,029, the last trade on the Nasdaq composite. Let's check the sectors behind me. As you can see here, we got a pretty even split, though. Energy and financials leading the way higher. You can see they're up about one half to three quarters, one percent. Meanwhile, you can see down here, discretionary retail and utilities are all down between a half and one percent at this stage right now. Here are some of the individual movers this hour. First stock, Bumble, up another 12 percent today after surging 64 percent in its Wall Street debut yesterday. You can see there a big move higher just off the highs of the session. Now, at the current price, the market capitalization is now up to, get this, $15 billion for that dating app and company in that, in that site. Our second stock is Illumina, sharply higher after beating on the top and bottom line thanks to record orders in the fourth quarter. The company is also issuing better-than-expected guidance for the fiscal first quarter as well. Those shares up about 15% off the session highs. And then check out the casino stocks, getting a lift today on news that casino capacity in Las Vegas can increase to 35 percent starting on Monday. Penn National Gaming is leading the way higher. You can see they're up by about 4 percent or so in the trade. But still, Wynn, Caesars, MGM, you get the idea. Now let's send it over to Courtney Reagan, who's got a CNBC News update. Good afternoon, Courtney. Hi, Dom. Here's what's happening at this hour. Former President Donald Trump's defense team says the current impeachment trial is a threat to political leaders' First Amendment right to freedom of speech. Lawyer Michael Vanderbeam claims Donald Trump's comments leading up to January 6th attack on the Capitol is, quote, ordinary political rhetoric. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden met with a bipartisan group of governors and mayors this morning to try and rally support for his $1.9 billion COVID-19 relief plan. Justin Timberlake is apologizing to Britney Spears and Janet Jackson. The pop singer has been under sharp criticism for his role in Spears' public breakdown and for not defending Jackson after her Super Bowl malfunction in 2004. The apologies come one week after the release of the New York Times' Framing Britney documentary. And 92% of workers canceled, postponed, or avoided booking vacations during the pandemic. But research shows taking time off is more important than ever. Check out the news with Shepard Smith tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time to find out how you can enjoy brief moments of bliss during these tough times. That's the CNBC News update at this hour. Dom, back over to you. Such an important key during these COVID times. Courtney Reagan, thank you very much. Well, it's been a wild week for the cannabis stocks as they became the new target for Reddit traders. Let's take a look at Tilray, the poster child, so to speak, for all of this. On Monday, a 16% rally. Tuesday, a 40% rally. Wednesday, up 50%. Yes, that's 50-5-0. But then yesterday, down almost 50%. Today, we are seeing a move lower again. While Tilray may be the poster child for the enthusiasm in cannabis, it does not appear to be Wall Street's favorite name. CNBC Pro combed through the analyst reports and found that one name kept coming up again and again as a top recommendation, and that stock is Green Thumb. For more on why that stock is Wall Street's fit pick and why Wall Street is a big fan, just go over to CNBC slash pro. Well, coming up on the show, Charles Schwab cashes in on the trading boom, a bullish beauty call, 
fleeing to Florida and a not-so-sweet ending for one retail staple New York City residents know very well. Keep it right here. The exchange is back in two minutes. Welcome back. Let's catch up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines are Robert Frank, Rahel Solomon, and Michael Santoli. First, from GameStop to pot stocks, retail traders just, say, just can't seem to get enough. And this retail frenzy is boosting online brokerages that are not named Robinhood. Charles Schwab saw staggering growth in January, reporting that it had added over 1,000 new brokerage accounts. By the way, that's up 200%. Uh, over the same time last year. Total client assets ballooned to more than $6.7 trillion. That is a 67% jump from the same time last year. Michael Santoli, we've talked about the free trading stuff for a while. Robinhood's synonymous with it, but all of the brokerages offer free trading right now. How much has the day trading mentality permeated investing today? Does it feel like 1997 to 1999? It definitely feels like it in terms of this source of energy coming from the broader public, uh, a little more excitement around certain types of, uh, of stocks that seem intuitive uh, to this group. But absolutely, it rhymes. Uh, what is surprising to me to some degree is the, is the difference that zero commissions made. I mean, I was around covering the very dawn of online brokerages in the 90s, and everyone knew the commission rates were going to be going down steadily over time, and they did. When they got to $5, you, know, you would hear the people in the industry say, hey, the average trade side is $10,000. What's the big deal about paying $5 in a commission? Well, guess what? If you want to get people who have one of my fractional shares and have smaller accounts uh, but are excited to trade more, this is what did it. So the pie is growing big enough for everyone uh, to get a piece. And, of course, uh, you know, Schwab been there a long time. A lot of that asset growth is from the market, but uh, it seems like a thriving moment for the industry in general. Robert Frank, I mean, you cover the really, really rich people out there. How, how, big, of it, how big of a deal is it that there's a, so to speak, democratization uh, of, of the industry, that investors are now not just like the millionaire types, but you can actually get in because of things like zero commission trading and, and of course, fractional share ownership as well. Yeah, Dom, this is long overdue. You know, the stock market is the wealth engine of America. And unfortunately, too many families were left off that engine and were not attached to it. The top 10 percent own 88 percent of the stocks in this country. And by the way, those numbers just haven't changed in over 20 years. So the fact that we finally have new investors, many of them young investors, coming into this market, hopefully going from being traders to long-term investors is what we need. Now, what we do need now, in addition to more investors, is less gamification and more education about investing. All right. So a big deal there for Charles Schwab, still following the big surge in retail trading. Next up here, if beauty's in the eye of the beholder, then the future is looking gorgeous for the beauty industry overall. The world's largest cosmetics maker, L'Oreal, is predicting a 1920s-style boom ahead for its market at an investor conference. L'Oreal CEO said the, co- the recovery will be the fiesta of makeup and fragrances. His words, this as L'Oreal reported better than expected revenues thanks to strong Chinese sales and robust growth thanks to skincare products. Other beauty companies have also been performing handsomely, if you will, Coty, Ulta, Estee Lauder have all more than doubled from their 52-week lows. Rahel, you cover many of these companies. I know you've been sitting in on some of those earnings calls as well. The big deal here is 
Is it a resurgence for health and beauty or has it just been around all year long and we just haven't really seen it? I don't know if it's a resurgence quite yet. I think where we're really seeing growth, Dom, is skincare, which you just alluded to there. Makeup scale sales had been sort of declining even before the pandemic, and the pandemic sort of accelerated that because most of us were home, but maybe you were on Zoom calls. But skincare, I think, is really where it's at. In fact, we heard the L'Oreal incoming CEO saying that's going to be his top priority when he assumes the position a little bit later this year. Uh, also, not just skincare, Dom, but what companies put in their products, uh, clean products. That's something we heard from Cody earlier this week, that they've been seeing really strong sales with the CoverGirl clean strategy. So I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I would listen. I would, I'm here for a fiesta of fragrances and makeup, and I'm certainly here for a bold lip. But I think skincare has definitely been accelerating. Sales have definitely been accelerating in the past few years and will likely continue to see that because, Dom, I don't know about you, but, you know, wearing these masks, now we have to deal with mask knee. That's a whole other issue. Certainly skincare, <laughs> very important for that issue. But I know a lot of people can relate. Well, so, so, so Robert, every time I hear about the, the roaring 20s, right, you know, and this is not the first industry or CEO that's made an allusion to the idea that we could see a resurgence like the 1920s as people kind of emerge from the pandemic. But in your mind here, how much could it be that much like the roaring 20s? I think Great Gatsby, I think of all these, you know, flapper type parties and everything else. Is it really going to be like that once COVID is kind of eliminated from the equation? Well, let's look at China. So what's been important to all these fragrance, uh, makeup and skincare products has been the comeback in China. I think L'Oreal had 27 percent growth in China in the most recent quarter. And China is what consumers could look like after the pandemic here. And what we've seen there is what they call revenge spending, where people are so tired of being cooped up and not spending that they went out. And the luxury industry is booming in China all roads in luxury lead to China right now. And, and part of that is because of demographically what's happening in China compared to an older U.S. But I do think that China is the, the north light of what luxury could look like in this country and in Europe once we're out of this. All right. I mean, it was one of the things that we talked about probably in April or May of last year. If you were looking for a leading indicator of what things could look like, it could be China because of the recovery over there. All right. Next, let's go somewhere warmer. I want to go someplace warmer without taxes, perhaps. The ongoing migration to Florida is turning the luxury retail estate, real estate market there into one of the hottest in the country, if you haven't already heard. In fact, the most expensive home ever sold in Florida just closed yesterday. Forget this, over $130 million, just down the road from billionaire investor David Tepper. Robert, I know what the allure of Florida is, but how hot can it get down there for the real estate market? Just when we think it's peaked, it just gets more incredible. So if you look at Palm Beach, which literally has run out of mansions to sell, David Tepper, the home that he bought or is in contract for, for $73 million, that home wasn't even for sale. And what I'm hearing brokers saying is they have to go around and knock on doors to find homes to sell. Uh, Scott Schleifer, who bought the house for over $130 million, that was a spec house, just came on the market in January. Prices in Palm Beach are up over 50% last year. Sales contracts in January more than doubled. This is no, shows no signs of slowing, and that's because what used to be a millionaire migration is now a billionaire bonanza. 
And the wealth, the wealthy, they just follow each other, especially those who are wealthier than they are. So I think this is going to just pick up steam. Mike Santoli, there have always been reasons for people in the Northeast, specifically New York City, to be in Florida. In fact, some people split their time. Is this one of those moments where we could really see Wall Street down on South Beach? Yeah, I don't know to what degree we have to move the, the infrastructure. I mean, right now you do actually have hedge funds already set up down there, right? Remember Citadel famously set up, uh, I believe, in Palm Beach. So I don't think it's, there's any impediment to it. I do want to say, though, let's knit this together. There was a Florida land bubble in the 1920s. Uh, I mean, people really did. It was, it's always <laughs> been the repository for the wealth that spills out of the rest of the country. So it's not surprising to see what's happening here, especially with the tax arbitrage happening. Oh, he's connecting dots. There are some implications there as well. We'll have to get to that later on at some point down the line. And there's, this is a bittersweet one here for all you candy fans out there. The iconic Dylan's Candy Bar is closing its flagship Upper East Side Manhattan location. The 13,000-square-foot store is now listed for lease by Ripco Real Estate. This comes amid a report from Manhattan real estate watcher The Real Deal that Dylan's Candy Bar is being sued by the landlord of its corporate office for unpaid rents. Rents for the retail space in New York City have skid to historic lows. We've talked about this, down 25% from pre-pandemic levels. Rahel, this is another sign of retail apocalypse, so to speak. But is Manhattan indicative of everything else that's happening in the country, or is it very specific to just New York? You know, it's hard to say, Dom, because I think those of us that live in the city, we live in our own little bubble, and we think that New York City reflects the larger country. But I can certainly say, being in the Upper West Side, for sure, uh, that it felt like a ghost town sometimes walking along Columbus Avenue, seeing all of the empty retail space. But, Dom, one thing that's been really interesting as well is seeing some of these landlords now sue these, uh, you know, these companies for real estate. In fact, I saw it earlier this week in Assignment Property Group upgrade. I think it was by Morgan Stanley, but essentially saying that uh, they're, they're upgrading on the potential recovery of about $410 million in abatements. And so uh, interesting to see if we'll start to see more of that as these landlords try to recoup rent. But uh, Simon Property Group, that you know, huge mall owner getting an upgrade because it looks like you know, they're going to be trying to recoup some of those rents too. Quickly, Robert Frank, do you frequent the Dillon's Candy Bar in New York City? Uh, my daughters did. But th this company was having problems before the pandemic. They're, they're a giant sugar house in a, in a sort of culture that is increasingly health conscious. And it's so overpriced. Dom, would you pay $17 for a container of gummy bears? I mean, I love gummy bears, but 17 bucks, you can get them for like $4 on Amazon. So even before the pandemic, they were having trouble. I just bought a massive bag of Sour Bright crawlers from Walmart.com. Mike Santoli, do you go to <laughs> Dylan's Candy Bar? I've been there. Uh, there actually was kind of a branch of that empire uh, closer by me. It was a restaurant. Uh, by the way, 20 years is a great run for any location in Manhattan. So, you know, there's a natural attrition here. I think the novelty probably wore off a little bit of that uh, of that store. So, uh, you know, I'm symptomatic of something going on, but I don't think it's necessarily you know, something that, that, the, that New York is going to uh, lament for a long period of time, like the old Penn Station being torn down or something. All right. Well, the new Penn Station looks pretty good, though. That's I would right. just say this. <laughs> Robert Frank, Rahel Solomon, Mike Santoli, thank you guys very much. That was today's edition of Rapid Fire. Coming up in the show, the Robinhood CEO heads to Capitol Hill next week to answer questions about the role his company played in the Reddit rally and collapse for some of those stocks. More on what we can expect ahead. And it is Black History Month, and we are honoring some of our CNBC contributors here is James McDonald with his advice for the next generation.
the most important advice I can give the next generation of black Americans is look at the success as an example that's before you. We've been a president of the United States. We've excelled in some of the largest financial institutions, and we've generated billions in those areas of finance that are the most complex. You can do it too. Go after what you want and be all that you can be. the exchange. It's Friday, and that means it's a good time to look ahead to what's in store for your money and investments in the next week. Here is your Friday Fast Forward. A shortened trading week, but plenty of action ahead. Walmart headlines the earnings front off a quarter that saw online sales jump 79%. Also, Palantir reports for the second time since its IPO. The stock up more than 40% in 2021. On Wednesday, January's retail sales. Economists hoping for a rebound after two months of declines. And is housing still hot? Reads on starts and existing sales may give us a clue. Details from the Fed's last meeting are due with the FOMC minutes. Thursday, NASA's Mars rover scheduled to land on the red planet after a seven-month journey. Back on Earth, Robinhood CEO testifies on Capitol Hill as Congress investigates that company's role in the Reddit rally. And that's your Friday Fast Forward. A lot of stuff on the agenda here. And the Robinhood CEO testimony on Capitol Hill, sure to be a fiery one. For more on what we can expect, let's bring in our own Kate Rooney. She covers all things fintech for us here. Kate, this is a huge deal because it's gotten so much Main Street popular attention. Just how hot will it get for the folks over at Robin Hood this week? Dom, that's the question. This hearing is supposed to be about GameStop, some of the trading sort of chaos that we've seen you know, late January in the past few weeks, but Robinhood is really becoming the poster child of that. You saw it with, you know, Senator Ted Cruz and AOC both going after Robinhood. They have really become a target in a broader issue, which in some ways is a lot of the volatility, young traders pouring all into the same stocks, and some of the back-end Wall Street systems that have worked perfectly fine until some of these factors have jumped up. So Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenev appearing before Capitol Hill, is a relatively young CEO. On the company side, you know, I would expect them to sort of deflect they already have and sort of turn the attention to their clearinghouse and some of the back-end systems that they say, you know, could be run more quickly, things like they call it T plus two. But the, the fact that it takes two days to settle a trade, so I think they're really saying, you know, we, there were issues here, but let's look at some of the other problems going on. There is certainly a lot, of bi- a lot of bipartisan support for kind of going after what's been the root cause of a lot of the trading volatility. Kate Rooney, thank you very much. I'm sure you'll stay on top of that and everything else fintech for us here. We'll see you later on. Have a nice weekend. See you, Dom. You too. Thanks. Coming up on the show, Wall Street banks could be getting closer to adopting Bitcoin. Yes, Bitcoin, thanks to a big push from their own employees. CNBC.com's Hugh Son has the exclusive scoop. He joins us next to talk about why the big banks and their employees want Bitcoin adoption. Welcome back to The Exchange. Bitcoin's remarkable run has employees at some of the country's biggest banks worried they may be missing out. Bitcoin down today, but up 26% just this week alone. A week that saw, by the way, both BNY Mellon, America's oldest bank, 
and MasterCard, one of the biggest payments networks out there, announced they intend to begin using and are in some way administering Bitcoin this year. And CNBC.com reporting that employees at J.P. Morgan Chase have been asking when their turn will come. CNBC.com banking reporter Hugh Son joins us now with more on if and when a big bank might give Bitcoin that breakthrough moment. It's one thing when it's a custody bank servicing assets for clients. It's quite something else when it becomes a part of the traditional banking system. Right, Hugh? Yeah, no, Dom, how are you? And, and happy year of the ox to you, my, my brother. Um, so look, when you, when, you, when you look at what, what came out of Boney Mellon, I mean, if you look at J.P. Morgan's businesses, they have a custody, right? You look at the, the news from MasterCard just yesterday or two days ago, I forget, they also have payment rails as well. So you're seeing different parts of the ecosystem and banks you know, being the most heavily regulated, they're the most complex. They're also the most crucial to our U.S. economy because they have so many different business lines. They have asset management, retail banking, obviously big, big uh, corporate investment banking, you know, Wall Street banking divisions. And so it would be a huge uh, stamp of legitimacy for the asset class, this nascent asset class, if a JP Morgan or if a Goldman Sachs were to get involved. Who is pushing for this? I, I alluded to the fact that it could be internal employees. If it is internal employees that are pushing for this, how are the executives at these organizations answering some of those questions from employees? It's a good question, Don. So, you know, as, as you know, it, it, there is a groundswell, okay? And look, even in the two, or two weeks or so that I've been looking at this story and trying to get inside, insider information about this, Bitcoin went from 30,000 to almost 50,000. There was a more than 50% increase just in the two weeks I was, I've been researching this story. It is insanely volatile and insanely you know, surging at, at the moment. And so when you have that kind of price action, naturally, you know, you think about the makeup of a Wall Street trader, they look at these charts and they want to get involved. They want to get involved because, you know, making markets in something that, that has this level and has these characteristics should be profitable if you can handle the risk. So, you know, uh, the town hall that I reported on, the JP Morgan town hall, you know, they, they uh, engaged on this. They had to. There were scripted comments, you know, between the head of the CIB, you know, the head of the Wall Street division and the head of markets and trading. And they brought it up and they, they discussed it. And, you know, they were, for the most part, open minded about it. Now, when I specifically asked them about this because I'd heard wind of this, you, uh, you had Daniel Pinto actually just say, basically, look, when when this is a mature asset class or when it's as a maturing asset class and everybody else is dealing with it, we have no choice but to deal with it. And it's it's more likely than not that they will eventually grapple with this. It's a huge story. Like you said, one of the most heavily, heavily regulated industries out there. Houston, thank you very much for that big story in J.P. Morgan and Bitcoin as well. I'm sure you'll stay on top of that for us. That does it for us here on The Exchange. Power Lunch starts after this quick break. Have a great holiday weekend. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.